time of worship. We have a number of talented musicians. We've got a number of guys who can wail on a guitar, but I think there might only be one or two who can play whatever instrument that was uh, over there. And while that might not make it to your playlist, while that's not in your workout mix, I understand that. Uh, I think it's really cool how we can come together and be able to champion different musical abilities and uh, worship God through all of those means, and I'm grateful to you for participating with us in that. Um, as we get started today, uh, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news at all, but the past couple weeks, for me at least personally, have kind of just been a little, little heavier, right? It seems like every time I, I flip on the news or I hear a story on the radio, there's always something uh, that just seems to be going wrong, whether we can talk about, uh, you know, the Weinstein movie thing that's going on, the allegations and actual actions that have taken place in his firing, whether we talk about uh, other systems and structures that have come up politicians that have been sent to prison for their behavior. We've got, uh, I don't know if you heard about this one, Kobe Steel uh, over in Japan sold bad copper to over 200 businesses, including planes, trains, automobiles, and uh, electronics too. And there, it just seems like every single story that I turned on, there was just this, this moral thread that was kind of traced through it. There was this opportunity at least to engage on some level um, with these actions that, that have been taken by people. And so I was just a bit overwhelmed this week, kind of sitting back and going, so as, as a Christian, as a person of faith, but even more than that, not as a Christian, but just as kind of a person with a rigid sense of morality, I just kind of carry this right and wrong attitude with me that there are things that are correct and good, and there are things that are not good, and that's, yes, inspired and interpreted through my faith, but I just went, man, how do we get to a place where there's so many things that happen, so many stories that come up, and it just feels like we could cut through them with a knife around so many of these Issues And as I just kind of had some conversations and got to sit back and reflect, and, and I just kind of saw that in our pursuit of freedom, the freedom of expression, the freedom to become whatever people we would choose to become regardless of consequences, that we've created something of, well, a monster in our society. And that people kind of can do whatever they want to do and that they can achieve any actions that they want to achieve. And we actually inadvertently end up championing that. People who operate according to their own highest good, what they believe is right in and of themselves, with no apparent regard for the people that they hurt or anyone else outside of themselves for that matter. And that maybe isn't revolutionary to you. I don't think I'm the first person to ever have that idea. I'm sure that you've thought that idea this week. But, but here's what I was most struck by within myself as I kind of processed through this. I don't know why we're surprised 
I don't know why we're shocked that when we allow people to live and define themselves without morality, with no sense of right or wrong, with no purpose outside of themselves, I don't know why we all of a sudden wake up one day in shock when people carry out those actions. Of course they do, because we've said and largely defined that as a culture that it's okay. You just do whatever you want to do, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and so long as those things don't intersect, then everybody's happy. Until it crosses some undefined moral line that isn't out there anywhere, we just all know when it's crossed, and then we're shocked, we're appalled, we're dismayed that somebody would actually behave this way, but there's really no uniform principles, there's no ideals that underline that sense of infringement on our morality. Right? For instance, we'd all agree that murder is wrong, but I bet if we took a poll, we would all disagree on gun control. We would all agree that when we got married that nobody ever planned to go into any extramarital routes for those relationships. And yet when marriages crumble and when situations happen where we find ourselves going, yeah, but I'm just not happy anymore. And all of a sudden the morality changes. And I think that the moral fabric of our society isn't disintegrating any longer. I think it's mostly non-existent. Now, before you go ahead of me and start putting words in my mouth, this is not a we-need-God-back-in-America kind of sermon. I, I think that my God and the gospel that I represent is so far above and beyond the American politics and democracy and capitalism as we know it. But what I believe is that when we come together like this to worship, that when we express a belief in something larger and greater than ourselves, when we actually take a moment in our week to take in a breath, to be a part of a larger body, a larger community, and to recognize that in the grand scheme of things, that our individuality, while is beautiful and prized and championed by God, may not be the highest ideal that we should champion as a society. And if I could stretch us just a little bit this morning, I would venture to say that we could find some sort of moral fabric that would unite us together, that we could come together with a set of beliefs and practices, things that we believe are true and good, and that we maybe try to structure our lives according to those things. And, and yet as I observe this continuing unraveling that's happening, not only as a nation, but in humanity, as members of this race that we call humanity, there just seems to be problems that arise, whether they're problems within religion itself, problems of systemic racism, systemic sexism, systemic violence. There's this constant vie, it seems like, for power and control. And I think that to a fault, maybe we've championed these ideals, right? That we exploit anybody no matter the cost. That the bottom line is the only line that counts. And that we silence and expel anybody who would disagree with those opportunities, right? You've heard the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and yet in our, at least in our nation, the world as I see it, we champion success regardless of the cost. As a matter of fact, those are the people that we hold up in highest esteem. Success means having power and money and control, and yet we're shocked and outraged when these virtues that we champion turn awry, when they end negatively instead of positively. And so to be completely honest, that's where my faith comes in. That's why I gather here on Sunday morning is to remind myself that left to my own devices, left to just being a person who's out for number one, I end up mirroring that story that's being told. But when we come together and agree that there is something greater, that there is something worth believing in, that there is something and someone who sets a moral direction for us, I think that's when we actually have the opportunity 
to make a bold statement in our world today and in our own individual lives. See, I think that this great American dream has maybe been a lie to us. And I see as I turn on the news and as I have conversations and coffee with people that, that it's a dream that we're slowly maybe waking up from. Maybe we're a bit groggy, maybe we're still stumbling around, but I think at the very end of it that we're championing this fact that we need a new rubric. We need a rubric for sustainability and for justice and for health, not simply the bottom line. And I think this is where a faith community such as ourselves begins to come together and to define what those things are that matter, not only to us, but that we believe matter across the spectrum of the human experience, and we get to champion things. And so when somebody gives us a definition of success, wealth, health, prosperity, all those kinds of things, we're able to say, no, that's actually not the vision of success that we're after. We don't want your version. Your version is inconsistent with what we see in reality, the values that we believe and hold true. And when we begin to express these things, I think that's when we set the foundation for some real groundbreaking change. And so while it may not sound like it, we're actually in the book of Philippians. It's week two of our series, Philippians, and we've been diving into this ancient letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a place called Philippi, a town, a church there. And what's so eerily similar is that the socioeconomic climate, uh, perhaps even the religious climate, the political climate, mirrors our own today. Because this group of people, these Christ imitators, these little Christs or Christians, their values and their beliefs were in contrast with their country, the empire in which they lived and served. Their values didn't match up. Just as our conversations this morning, we may be going that the morals and values that we hold in this place may not hold up with what's championed outside of these walls. That's the situation of the church in Philippi. So much so that they were not only ridiculed for their beliefs, as you and I might be today, being called archaic or outdated, but they were actually imprisoned for their faith, for their beliefs, even jailed for a time, tortured, and even killed during various seasons. And so Paul is writing in the midst of this season where people are believing in a different kind of normal, a different kind of socioeconomic currency, where he's believing in morality in a, in a situation in a country that did not believe or champion morality in his viewpoint. And he's filled with this awe-inspiring sense of purpose, right? In his own words, we talked about this last week, he's filled with joy, which is woven throughout the letter. There's a contentment about him, a winsomeness, that his outlook is not intimidating by the world that's seeking to stamp out his viewpoint, but that his hope and his belief is found in this person of Jesus. And that because of the state of the world, because of who Jesus is to him, that doesn't seem to have an impact on him. It doesn't seem to sway him to the left or to the right. As a matter of fact, it actually makes it look like he's out to affect change, to make something happen in the world at large around him. And so he writes a letter to express his joy at the current situation. Maybe not quite a letter that you and I would write as we talk about the situations I just referenced, but Paul did to encourage others to adopt and share his viewpoint of a Christ who is king, not only in heaven, but in the world as well. He shares this with the church at Philippi, and if you'd allow us the grace, I think that he writes it to us, a church in our situation in the world as well. So we're going to jump into chapter 2. If you brought your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible and uh, you want to follow along in an old archaic Bible, then I'd encourage you to raise your hand. It's going to be on page 551, and uh, you can use this Bible. If you don't own one, please just keep it. We want you to have God's Word in your life. We think that that is so important. Of course, 
course, you can follow along on your smartphone, any of that other fun stuff. But what we've been talking about is making connections as we walk through the book of Philippians together, right? You got your card. In case you missed one last week, we're doing a reading challenge to read the book of Philippians in its entirety every single week. We're going to memorize Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. How's that going this past week? You doing okay? Do we check some boxes? Couple, okay, that's, that's cool. Um, maybe you want it via text, but I had a couple of conversations this week. Say, hey, I signed up for the Galatians reading challenge. Am I still going to get the reminders? No, you're not. You have to sign up again by texting Bible to the number uh, on the screen. I don't think I have it right in my notes, uh, but you can text Bible to that number and you'll get subscribed there because if you don't, um, apparently you can sue me and I don't want that to happen. Uh, so you've got to opt back in if you want the Philippians challenge. You'll get a chapter a day just texted to you so you can keep up, and uh, also our memory verse there. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, and the backdrop for Philippians chapter 2 is, of course, chapter 1, right? Remember, Paul's in prison. Uh, he's writing with joy, and here's what he has to say, locked up in prison for his beliefs to encourage the church at Philippi. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, whatever happens, right? This is a guy in jail writing to people who are persecuted for their beliefs, who hold to a different moral ethic, right? Life is not good, but whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I, Paul, come see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So in Paul's view, in the worldview that he holds, following Christ, following is belief, right? Our faith in him. We would affirm this as well, right? Heaven and eternity and the forgiveness of our sins, all of those things happen when we accept Christ and they're right and good. He says that's great, but not only for Paul is it a piece of that believing, but he says not only to believe, but also to suffer. Paul says these things are one in the same. They're a united force. You can't have one without the other. Or rather, maybe you could have one without the other, but Paul seems to think it's better that what we've been granted in Christ to suffer for our beliefs is better than the alternative, to not take a stand, to not actually suffer. Paul says, you're doing exactly what I would be doing. Remember, you saw me going through this same suffering, and now you know that I'm still going through this same kind of conversation. And the good thing, as we read last week, is that the gospel is advancing. And so Paul's encouragement is that in every way that we would conduct, that we would hold our attitudes in line with this version of who Christ is. And now in, ver in view of that light of the gospel, in view of not only this belief, but also the suffering, here are Paul's instructions to the church at Philippi in chapter 2. He says, therefore, because we're suffering together, because not only we believe, but also suffer in our faith for Jesus, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in, uh, in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Paul says, hey, since you're suffering, therefore, because of all that's going on, know and understand the purpose. If you have any piece of this that is encouraging, any piece that draws you towards love and compassion, anything that's worth doing in this thing, then hey, do me a favor. Make my joy complete. 
In other words, you're already doing these things. Let me just give you the perspective and the encouragement to make it happen. Since we're already suffering together, I know that your convictions are my opinions. He uses this strong, multi-nuanced kind of phraseology, right? If you have any compassion, any tenderness, any love, if there's anything even remotely a part of Christ in you, then make my joy complete. And as we go through the hardships of this world, Paul's answer would be that, that when we get divided by the world around us, when things begin to pull us apart, that the answer is to be one in Christ, to find a solidarity, a common sense of purpose, to stand up against things that would we say be perhaps against what we believe, not quite in line with who we are. Paul says, hey, come together, be as one spirit, one mind, be united in the banner of Christ. That's how we stand up to be morally distinct, to be distinct in the world around us. As we go through the hardships of this world, Paul appeals to his co-laborers and to us that we should do it together. And when we do that, we should champion these virtues of the gospel, compassion and tenderness and love at every corner and everywhere we turn, and that we would decry injustice wherever it comes up, whether it's in the life of the Hollywood movie producer or people in Africa who get a Christmas gift. We should be the ones who are the loudest voice to make this world right as we see it, right in terms of who Jesus is. And so Paul calls out his fellow believers and he says, hey, since we see the world through the same lens, since we come together, since we have this shared suffering together, then let's be united in that. Let's be of one mind and one spirit united under Christ. What does that look like for us today? I bet that no matter what issue we took a poll on in this room, and we're a small group of people, that we would find things that we do not completely agree on. I'd wager we'd be similar on another of things, uh, but I don't think we'd be able to find a single issue that we could all be united and rallied around. Even if I said something as simple as who hopes the Broncos wins today, there's going to be somebody who's cheering for the Giants or somebody else who just wants to see the Broncos go down. Am I right? Yeah, yeah see, there's one guy there. I knew I'd find somebody. I knew he'd be there, right? That's what I was counting on. Here we go. So how can we be united when there are so many things that divide us? When we can't even agree on something simple like sports, how can we be united in a world where there's so many things going on, so many issues that seek to divide and pull us apart? Well, I'm glad you asked, and I think Paul is too. Philippians 2, verse 3. Here's Paul's answer. He says, do nothing. This is how we be united. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others, right? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, right? That's not a tall order at all. Just be Jesus to people. It should be simple, right? He's only, you know, the Son of God, Savior of the world kind of thing. How do we be united? How do we follow in this pathway? What does Paul set out for us as ways in which we encourage and foster this Christ-likeness within us? The first is really simple. I know it's going to blow your minds, right? Stop being selfish. I know, right? That's what you came to church for this morning. How could you even put that together on your own? But, but the reason why here, Paul says, is that when we look to our own interests, when we take guard of ourselves, we instantly lose the ability to have care and compassion for the people around us. It's simply impossible to hold those two things in tension. When we're always looking out for number one, then there's no way to look out and care for the people around us. If you want to be united with Christ, if you want to be a part of a body of believers, then you've got to check your ego at the door. Don't make a name for yourself at the expense of someone else. Instead, 
put others first. Now, this is hard, again, because in our society, in the world that we live in, we champion the virtue of firstness, right? The first person, we champion winners, right? Winners are winners and losers are, well, losers. What does this do to us developmentally as a society? It creates a system that rewards people who win at any cost and punishes people who lose for any reason. And so at a very young age, we internalize this idea, this virtue, that no matter the cost, we're going to win. No matter the cost, we're going to pursue victory. And don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with winning. There is something very wrong with winning at any cost. Ask any athlete who's caught, been caught using steroids. Ask any number of corporate leaders who've gotten to the top through scandals and cover-ups, and they got there because losing wasn't an option, and then the world came crashing down. We champion firstness, and so when I say don't do anything selfish, when the gospel reaches forward 2,000 years, it's easy for us to just kind of shirk that off. Of course, we're not supposed to be selfish, But too often as we go throughout our daily lives, we are championed and rewarded on this system and scale of watching out for number one. And so Paul would challenge that idea. He says, don't do anything, right? So some things are okay. No, do nothing for selfish ambition. Don't do anything with the goal of self-promotion, for self-advancement. Don't draw attention to the fact that you've never taken a sick day in your life. Own the fact that your work is unto the Lord and set aside any spirit of self-promotion or vain conceit. Instead, Paul would submit a different thought process for us. He says, instead, embrace humility. Instead of vying for yourself, instead of watching out for number one, instead embrace embrace a work ethic, embrace a world idea of humility, of championing others as better than, as more important than yourselves. Now, what's real careful, real important not to take this out of context, right? Humility is not thinking of yourself as a terrible person. It's not falling into a false comparison trap and saying, oh, you're so much better, so much smarter, so much prettier, whatever that is. That's not humility. That's false humility, and it's false pride all wrapped up into one. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves. It's not putting ourselves down. It's instead thinking of ourselves less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, the time that we spend focused in on ourselves versus the time that we spend thinking in on others. And again, I see this as being real easy to do. When you have a conversation, when you're in front of somebody, when you have a relationship with someone, when you hear about something on the news that you are not an expert in, that you don't have a personal vested interest in, take the posture of a learner. Be humble. Ask questions. Don't seek to perpetuate your own worldview as we walk into situations that we don't know anything about. Instead, ask questions and learn. Let me just give you a personal example here. I grew up uh, in the plains of South Dakota. There was not a measurable percentage of African Americans in my state, in my city, in my school. It simply wasn't there. And so when Black Lives Matter came up and rose, it was real easy for me to just kind of internalize that and go, of course I'm not of course I'm not a racist. Like I, I barely know anybody that's African American. How could I be that way? And so I wanted, to, I wanted to perpetuate my experience, my worldview onto them. Surely police aren't just pulling people over for the color of their skin. How could, how could that be? I simply don't inhabit that world because in my reality where I was raised and my experiences growing up, it simply did not exist. I don't know whether or not that was your experience, whether or not you can relate, but, but here's where it comes to a head. 
Instead of promoting what I believe to be true in the world, instead of thinking that I have all the answers, instead taking a posture of humility and sitting across the table from brothers and sisters of different races and different ethno classes and different socioeconomic scales and going, hey, tell me your story. Tell me about what you've experienced. Tell me about how life works for you because in my experience, that isn't true. But if I start spouting off and posting on Facebook about how I believe this or that about certain things and how I've never seen that happen and I can't believe that, all of a sudden I'm championing my own self-promotion, my own selfish ambition, my own worldview without taking the time to humbly listen to the actual people and situations where it matters. Right? Similarly, I don't know how many of you go to work every day and have to have the fear of a gun being pulled on you, but for a number of police officers that work and inhabit those tremendous places, that's their reality and they have to be prepared for that. And so rather than spouting off about how all cops are this way and that way and how they should all be banned and yada, 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 instead sitting across humbly and going, hey, what's it like to walk a day in your shoes? How do you know that you're going to arrive home and be safe? How do we have all those things? And, and so when it comes to humility, when it comes to sharing life together, I, I use these kind of polarizing terms because that's easy for us to understand. It's easy for us to grasp, right? Men, we can probably come alongside that and go, hey, we've never feared for our life in a job interview. We've never been afraid of being physically or worse attacked in any situation. And instead of going, well, that's just the world that we live in, instead coming across humbly and going, hey, What's the experience of the women in our lives who have on an increasing number are being taken advantage of in every way imaginable? And we use these galvanizing issues, but, but here's the bottom line. Every single person here today has a story. Every single person got here through a series of events that has impacted and shaped their life. And so whenever we begin this whole self-promotion talk, thinking that we know what's going on in somebody else's lives, in somebody else's heart, even if we have similar upbringing, similar backgrounds, the bottom line is that every person has a unique opportunity to teach us something. So in your conversations, as you go through your daily walk, whether it's here or at work or on the bus or wherever you find yourself in conversation, stop being selfish in the conversation. Stop self-promoting. Instead, be humble and lean in and listen and learn something. What's it like to walk in your shoes? What's it like to be this way? Because all of us have a story and God's kingdom has a way to work in each and every one of those stories. And when we take the time to learn people's stories and to hear their viewpoints, to not advocate for ourselves, then we find opportunities to leverage what we have been given for the sake of others. Paul demonstrates for us that in this way of stopping our own selfish ambition and the stories that we would rather tell and by extending our situations to others, that we instead embrace humility to learn from others and to hear their stories and that we would then consider their experiences as more important than our own. He says this is how we achieve unity in Christ, being united in Christ. And he, he gets so overwhelmed by this thought that he actually bursts out into song. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Who, talking about Jesus being in very nature God, did not, equality, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Do you hear the selfish and humility within there? By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death and even death on a cross. 
in a world that divides us, in a world that seeks to rip apart our belief systems, our, our structures that we hold valuable, in a world that seeks to find every single opportunity to pit one side versus the other. Unity takes. Unity takes being focused in the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who did not come to this earth to earn or to prove anything. He was already God of one substance with the Father. He had nothing to prove, but he leveraged his position to come and hear our stories, to come and be a part of what we were doing here. The author of Hebrews sums it up this way. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In a world obsessed with power, in a culture that seeks to divide, and in a worldview that seeks to control, don't try to leverage our power. Don't buy into their system. We can't, we can't overcome the system by being more powerful and more in control and spending more dollars. Jesus says that doesn't work. You can't champion the world by using the world's standards. He says, instead, consider Christ. Consider his attitude and his behavior. Consider coming humbly. Consider coming alongside. And by doing this, we find true life. Literally, the conclusion from Paul's is where we started just a couple weeks ago in our vision series, that when we, when we come alongside people and do things God's way, rather than just perpetuating a system that, that vies for power and control, we instead shine like stars. Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine like stars among them in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Here's where this kind of all comes from. I got asked this question a lot over the course of this couple of weeks. So in light of this situation or that, in light of Vegas or in light of Puerto Rico or the fires in California or the moral situations that I referenced earlier, what's the Christian response? What are we to do in this world? What kind of responses do we have in a world that just seems to have everybody mad at everybody else and everybody finding some reason to tear who's ever across the aisle down for whatever reason? How do we behave as Christ followers? How do we be united and in one mindset with Jesus? And the answer is simply to shine to be who Christ has called us to be, to ask questions, to engage humbly, to stop self-promoting ourselves like we have all the answers and instead to represent this God who we serve, this Jesus who came to die for us, to be a light in the darkness, to do something that makes a difference. Because there's so much to be divided about. So many things that pull us this way or that way, but we can be united under the banner of Christ. This God who came down from heaven, who took on flesh, he set aside his divinity in order to make a way for you and for I to spend eternity with God. 
And so he, he set aside all of these things. He set aside his privileges, his rank, everything that he had, and instead came humbly and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to pay a price to redeem us. Because when we were at our absolute worst, at the lowest points in humanity, the stories that we referenced just earlier today, God looked down from heaven and he points at us as we're steeped in muck and mire and dirtiness and unworthiness, and he looks us in the eyes and he says, I'm going to marry that one. That's the one that I want. And he sets out on a process and a pathway to send Jesus to redeem us, to pay the ransom that it takes to clean us up and to get us sparkling white. And in that process, as we adopt Christ's mind, as we come into the family and in the fold of God, we have time and opportunity and the perspective of you being united under one banner and that being Christ. And so today, as we end, we're going to mark this opportunity by celebrating an age-old tradition. We're going to take communion together. We're going to take the opportunity to express our unity and to take a stand perhaps against a world that you feel is dividing us or a world that you don't recognize when you turn on the news and hear the stories. We get to take kind of a line in the sand moment and to celebrate and recognize whose we are and who we are in Jesus. So we've got elements set out. We practice open communion here at the porch, which means so long as you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome at the table. We've got bread and juice set out. You can take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and then just partake on your own as we worship. As we move into that time and, and transition into it, I just wonder maybe what the Holy Spirit laid on you this morning. Maybe there's a situation or an area where you're feeling that division rising up. Maybe it's the conversations around the lunch tables at work. Maybe it's simply as you've been processing through the number and myriad of tragedies that occur in our world. Whatever it is that you see and experience, I'd invite you to set aside the things that divide and to embrace being united under Christ's banner, the thing that is the most important. And as we come together, as we come to this table, all are welcome and all are equal because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So you're invited to come. And as we partake, we remember of the sacrifice of Jesus who came and he sat down with his disciples and he took just some bread that was normal and ordinary on the table and he broke it and he said, hey, this, is, this is like my body which is broken for you. All of you take and eat. Similarly, there was a cup that was already poured, that already been drinking out of it. It was nothing special. But Jesus said, this represents, this is like a new covenant. It's a new promise that I'm making to you. And all of you should drink from it. And when we partake in this sharing, when we partake in this fellowship together, what we do is that we proclaim Christ's death and resurrection. We proclaim unity in a world that seeks to divide us on every issue. And so my hope is that as we endure these storms together, not only as a local congregation, but as a body of Christ nationwide and worldwide, that we would be united on the things that matter, that we would champion the cause of those who are, of those who are um, marginalized, of those who are less than, of those whose stories that we don't hear, and that we would be the loudest voice in our culture for justice and for truth and for doing what's right. Let me just pray for us as we move into that time.
Heavenly Father, God, there's so many things to be concerned about, God. There's so many things that draw our attention away, so many situations, God, that we just shake our heads at and seem to not understand. And yet, God, if we're here this morning, then I think that there's at least some concept to where we're declaring together that the only answer that we have for those situations is you. God, we don't have all the answers. God, convict us of the times where we've just spouted off what we think is the right answer without actually coming to understanding and being humble and speaking with people. And God, grant us the spirit of Christ within us, God, to humbly come to people, to humbly come next to them and to say, I just need to hear your story. I just need to hear what life is actually like for somebody outside of my own headspace. God, as we express this belief in you, as we come together to be united under your banner, God, we're grateful that you set the example for us, that you paid our price, that you took on a humble death, that you took on a sinner's death for us. And it's not so that you could wave it over our head. It's not so you could be right and we could be wrong. God, it was because of your great love for us. God, as we go through this world, as we go through our day-to-day interactions, as we have opportunities, God, allow us to express the love that you have for us conveyed to everyone in our life, that they would know that we love them regardless of the differences that we expose. God, regardless of socioeconomics or paths or anything else, God, but that we're just simply brothers and sisters and that we would shine your light and that we would shine it well. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. All God's kids said.